In 2010, Dr. Salius Spinati wanted to open an Islamic place of worship in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, roughly 40 minutes outside of Nashville. Their site was approved for construction, but not without opposition. We saw 350 people or so storming the old courthouse. And what we heard basically is, you know, they are here to kill us, they are here to take over the Constitution and creep Sharia law. We said, oh my God. When we woke up to see um, the construction equipment torch basically and, and set a fire. Efforts were made to try and stop the Islamic Center from opening up. They filed a lawsuit against the county and the mayor for approving our site. So that hearing basically lasted three months where they brought, they call them, you know, Islamic experts, you know, these are Islamophobes who made basically their um, fortune out of selling fear and hate. They said, you know, um, Sharia law is going to take over the constitution. Islam is not religion. And six months after the hearing ended, uh, the judge basically said, well, Islam is a religion. The court ruled in their favor, but the relief was short-lived. The judge allowed a different lawsuit to be filed, which said there should have been better public notice about the Islamic Center being opened. The judge agreed and voided their building permit. There are thousands and thousands of permits that were given the same way. There's no zoning problem. There's no nothing. You know, we have church next door. Um, we follow the same process. Well. If this is the case, then you would void all the permits that were given on that day, right? But what happened is the judge said, only the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro permit is voided. Construction of their building was almost done, and just like that, they couldn't even walk into it. It got the community wondering, was our government favoring one religion over the other? And should that be allowed to happen? Welcome to the Reconnecting Roots podcast, where we dive deep into unique stories and aspects of American culture that are often overlooked. If you're new to Reconnecting Roots, we like to frame the future through the past, looking at things we experience today and seeing where they came from in order to reconnect to what we've lost or understand how it's improved across generations. I'm your host, Ryan Estabrooks. I'm Gabe McCauley, host of the Reconnecting Roots TV series airing on a PBS station near you, or available to watch on ReconnectingRoots.com. And I'll be your guide throughout our story today. And today, we're looking at how religion interacts with our government here in America. Basically, to what extent is the church separate from the state? Where are the lines and boundaries when it comes to expressing your faith? You know, the really light, fluffy questions that everyone loves discussing and has zero disagreements about whatsoever. We'll chat with Michael Gunger, co-founder of The Liturgist, which is a community and podcast that's geared toward art, science, and faith. There's a difference between a judge telling you that you have to believe X, Y, and Z, or your preacher, your pastor at your church telling you that. And we'll also hear from Sister Simone Campbell, the executive director of Network, a religiously based group that lobbies for equality and justice that broader perspective to know that we're sisters to the world. I mean, it opens a heart in a whole different way. Constructed to perfection, 
and responsibly built for the long haul. Taylor Stitch has taken over 10 years of feedback and is doubling down on their commitment to building the best possible clothing while pledging to limit their environmental impact. From fiber to fabric to factory to end to functionality, Taylor Stitch has grown from a need for products without limitations that could handle chopping wood, surf sessions, snagging trout, or simply heading to the office. On top of making the world's best apparel, they're asking questions about how they can protect wild forever. And as a Reconnecting Roots listener, use the code Reconnecting Roots. That's Reconnecting Roots, all one word, for 25% off all products, one use per customer. That offer is valid through July 2021. Taylor Stitch makes some outstanding clothing. How do I know? Because I wear it. I have some. And without a doubt, every time I'm sporting a jacket, a shirt, I get compliments. It looks good on me, so I know it'll look great on you. Taylor Stitch. I wake up every morning to two things. One, my lovely bride, and two, a cup of Mule Town coffee. It's just good, for goodness sake. Steep, sip, enjoy. Making good coffee has never been easier than with Mule Town Coffee's new steeped packs. Whether you're rushing to get kids out the door, traveling abroad, or out hiking the trails, Mule Town Steep Packs are easy to carry, easy to brew, and ready wherever you are. Just add hot water. Visit MuleTownCoffee.com to order Steep Packs today. And as always, have a good one from everyone at Mule Town Coffee. Now through July 31st, 2021, customers will get 20% off Steep Packs when they use coupon code STEEPITUP. S-T-E-E-P-I-T-U-P. All one word, Steep It Up. And if you're wondering out there, is it really that easy? Can I really just go to a website, say I want coffee, and it'll be delivered to my door just whenever I run out? Yeah, it is. I know because I've done it. Mule Town Coffee. Good for goodness sake. Reconnecting Roots has some new friends we can't seem to shake. I mean, you know those guys. They crash on your couch, drink all your booze, and clutter the sink with leftover bowls of ramen. Earl and Craig host a PBS show called The Good Road with a companion podcast called Philanthropology. That's right, Philanthropology. They travel a ton around the world and seek out cool people who are change makers and tell their stories. Check them out at thegoodroad.tv where you can jump to their podcast and info about the show. But I will warn you, if you connect with them, they will ask if they can crash on your couch. They've done it to me. Earl and Craig really have become good friends of ours. They're such fun people with great hearts, and their TV show, The Good Road, and Philanthropology, the podcast, are worth checking out. Their show's about people doing good. We could all stand to see and hear about more of that. The Good Road with Craig and Earl. Check them out. I think it's helpful to first understand where the phrase separation of church and state came from. The First Amendment in the Bill of Rights says verbatim, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The first part of that phrase is understood to mean that our government should not make laws that prioritize one specific religion. But it doesn't use the word separation. 
Instead, the metaphor of separation became popular when Thomas Jefferson used it in a letter he wrote in 1802. He said the Establishment Clause built a wall of separation between the church and state. And thus, the phrase stuck in our culture ever since. But reality is more complicated than what we read in letters or in law books. There have been a lot of questions that followed the idea of separation of church and state. Mainly, what qualifies as being part of the state? And what exactly does the word church represent? Because we're talking about a country that's not only very religious overall, but one that had settlers fleeing their homelands in order to practice their religion in the way they saw fit. A big question that constantly comes up no matter where you are is this. Is America a Christian nation? Just asking that question can get some pretty heated responses. If you don't believe me, ask it on your Facebook or Twitter and, uh, yeah, just see what happens. So, Gabe, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I think... Uh, <clears throat> it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, which is why I asked Michael Gunger this very question. I would say absolutely, but I would say it in probably a different way. Michael lives in Los Angeles, California, and is the co-founder and executive producer of The Liturgist, a community that approaches spirituality and religion with a completely open mind. And they also have a podcast of the same name. And I, when I say a Christian nation, I don't mean um, that everybody identifies as Christian or... Uh, I just mean that, like, we have the Bible as a part of swearing in the president of the United States or in every courthouse. We have in God we trust on our bills. We don't have in Allah we trust. We don't have in Shiva we trust. Um, it is a Christian or at least a post-Christian empire. It was colonized with Christianity involved in that colonization. It's the general context of when you say Yahweh, or when you say God in America, is the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, Yahweh, of Judaism, Christianity, as a go-to. So it sounds like it's both a yes and a no. The no comes from the fact the founders of America made it clear in their own words that they believed freedom of religion was not only a very good thing, but that the government should not pick and choose a single official religion. John Adams, Samuel Adams... Uh, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington all supported this idea. And yet, like Michael just mentioned, phrases centered around God have popped up in many different parts of the U.S. government. Not to mention, since the majority of people are overwhelmingly Christian, it can certainly feel like Christianity is the official religion in more of a cultural sense. But how do you how do you balance this? Like how when does it become a negative thing? This idea of separation of church and state. What are some of the difficulties um, trying to keep church and state separate? Yeah, because there's an element of the us and them realities about what religion can really play on. It's not necessarily only values like let's treat every person with dignity and honor. It's also tribes and teams. So when you 
combine religion with things like patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism and all these other like systems that when they interplay what the the <laughs> the intersection of all those things creates life to be very difficult for some people the result is what we see it's it's like a few people control almost all the resources certain lives are not valued as much as other lives certain people don't have the practical rights in a way that other people do so i, I guess the the danger of not having some sort of intentional separation of church and state is how that can abuse people who don't fit the mold of the power structure. At the same time, we don't necessarily want everyone to talk about religion only behind closed doors, to pretend like they have no religious affiliations at all in public, or even act like some tenets of their faith don't influence their day-to-day -day lives. The messiness of it is, of course, you want people to be able to incorporate their values into our collective sharing of life. We want to value the things that we value. And there are aspects, I think, personally, of Christendom that we've, that we've inherited that are also really beautiful. Gabe, what do you think is unique about America's relationship with religion? I try and imagine what it would be like to look at America as another nation and sort of say, what would my perception be? And I, I do think other nations look at us as a Christian nation. Yeah, I would agree. Even if our, our documents, our constitution says we have no specific state religion, I think we're looked at as a Christian nation and that's evident in pop culture as well. And you have all these subsects of that, you know, no. even within like cowboy culture, you have crosses on cowboy boots and in, on apparel, and then you have rap artists with rosaries. I mean, Madonna made rosaries popular at one time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not uncommon at all to see pop artists and singers and uh, athletes wearing big gold chains with huge gold crosses studded out with uh, diamonds. And um, it, it's just so ingrained within the culture, it's become part of our fashion. It's obviously Christian in nature. I would agree. There, there are definitely some some stereotypes that other countries view us as, as having. Yeah. And one is, of course, that we have all the guns. Everybody's got guns. Uh, that's a big kind of stereotype. But along with that does kind of come the religious aspect. Uh, you know, they're they're a little intertwined in in the minds of of others. And I grew up in the South and still kind of live in the South and. I didn't realize how desensitized I became to the amount of churches that we have. Because if you grew up here, it's it's just kind of a thing. Like there's a church on every block, just about. Yeah. Or, or at least in the South. Uh, some of my international friends, uh, I have a, a group of Australian friends who came here and toured America from coast to coast. And they were just blown away by how many churches that they saw and, and not even just in Tennessee and in the South, but just from coast to coast. And also about how out in the open people were about going to church and God and their beliefs and this and that. I mean, for them, like not only are there not nearly as many churches in Australia, or at least, you know, the parts of Australia that they're from, for them culturally, religion, it's, it's obviously a thing, but it's like a very personal thing. It's not something that, that you just go out and 
talk about. Like it's it's almost kind of like a private thing, just like you would keep private some stuff that happens in your family. Mm. It's kind of the same thing for them. So to not only see churches just out in the open everywhere, but to hear everybody talking about it, yeah. and people would keep asking them, "What church do you go to? What church do you go to?" Like that's just not a thing over there. Right. You, you don't ask someone that. Like that's sure. that to them that's akin of asking like a super personal question. I, I think America was just a ripe breeding ground for religious diversity. It's almost like America has been a religious experiment, you know, specifically a Christian experiment. Yeah. And we still don't know the result. You know, we're waiting to see the reports here in a couple hundred years. Uh, How'd that work out for us? I mean, just every 10 years, looking at the changes in in demographics is is huge. Let alone, man, a hundred years from now, I can't even imagine what our religious makeup is going to look like with the newer generations. Training, that's what does it. And training starts in the school each day in the good American way. When I was in elementary school, I had to say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. And when I say had to, I mean, I would get in trouble if I didn't. To most people, it's probably not a big deal, but many are concerned with the fact that taxpayer dollars fund public schools. And yet, there are instances where religious elements are included in everyday school activities. And that's where the lines start to get a bit hazy when it comes to publicly funded, aka government funded areas, how much should we limit anything related to religion? And how much should we limit the ability of teachers to express their religious views in the classroom? After all, they're people too, and have their own beliefs which may come up from time to time. On the other hand, what happens when that teacher's religious beliefs start dictating what they choose to teach, especially if those beliefs go against yours as a parent? Kids might feel conflicted if they hear one thing at school, but something totally different at home. And what about your tax dollars going to religiously affiliated schools you don't agree with? One big court case that challenged these notions was the Everson versus Board of Education in 1947. The state of New Jersey was giving taxpayer money to buses that took kids to private schools, 96% of which were Catholic. A citizen named Arch Everson viewed this as an indirect government contribution to religious entities. The case made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, who ruled that this form of monetary assistance was okay. But the court was split, and the ruling was decided by one single vote. These types of court challenges, from the lower courts all the way up to the top, are very common to this day, and likely will continue to be in the near future. One thing the courts have mostly agreed on is keeping religiously specific items, such as Ten Commandments monuments, off of government property. Courts have ordered the removal of them from government areas in Arkansas, Kentucky, New Mexico, and others. But the people in government, like politicians, have much more protection thanks to the First Amendment. It's their right to express their beliefs and even explain how their religion affects the decisions they make. But at what point do their beliefs shape laws that favor their beliefs, whether it's explicit or not? Michael had some insight into that very question. There's a difference between a judge telling you that you have to believe X, Y, and Z, or your preacher 
your pastor at your church telling you that it gets super messy in the private sphere of like, what should people be allowed to exercise their convictions? There is a messy gray area, but there are also areas that it's so clean, like a difference between making it illegal to be gay or a church having the right to choose whether they can marry gay people or not. They're, those are very different things, but there's a different level of power that they're operating with. So when we're talking about the law of the land, it should be more about just keeping us from directly and actively harming each other more than policing the beliefs of anybody or the way that they want to live their lives for themselves. I mean, their, their thoughts, their beliefs, their behaviors insofar as it's not actively hurting somebody else. Where things get even more complicated is when politicians get involved in religious events that other people see as networking opportunities. Whether it's a prayer breakfast or a speaking engagement, politicians can say they're exercising their freedom of religion just like anybody else. But the reality is, elected politicians are still seen as representatives of the government, no matter where they go. Some have called into question these religious events that have been used by outside parties solely to make deeper connections within the U.S. political system. The worry is that it might present conflicts of interest. Electeds lose sight of the fact that they're seen as a conduit, as power, and have lost sight of the power that their political position brings. It's just natural. It's just me. It's, it's ordinary. It's no big deal. Well, that's Sister Simone Campbell. She's the executive director of Network, a Washington, D.C.-based group founded by Catholic sisters focused on social justice and equality for people of all genders, faiths, and race. But what others see from the outside is that desire to connect, to, to get a step up or have a friend in D.C. One aspect of our culture where politics and religion directly intertwine is with Christian nationalism. So what exactly are we referring to when we say Christian nationalism? Well, it appears to be that effort on the part of some to hold out Christian and U.S. patriotism as equal and as primal. And they take the faith dimension to make it normative for everyone. And they begin to say that you are not patriotic if you're not Christian. And so then it, it's a very slippery slope then to the anti-Muslim feeling, to the anti-Semitic feeling, to the anti-Sikh feelings, to the anti-anything feeling, anti-Catholic feeling even. It is that judgment against others because patriotism and Christian have become synonymous. But when does it get too far? Like, what are the biggest dangers you can see or have seen of, of Christian nationalism? Uh, okay, a couple of things. One is individualism, which is really based in what's called the prosperity gospel, which is the mm. antithesis of the actual gospel. The prosperity gospel says... I'm rich because God blessed me. And the more rich I am, the more God blesses me. So give me more money. No social responsibility, no social engagement for me is one of the 
really serious problems. And then the second piece is that it's very convenient for politicians to use that sense of individualism to manipulate it for their own advantage. Mm. And so the politicians play on this. It's a structure of domination that's not good for the U.S. and not good for faith. Sister Simone says part of Christian nationalism comes down to people thinking very locally, as opposed to globally. As a Catholic, her religion is international, and this helps broaden her horizons and realize that when you're not only concerned about the country you live in, but about the whole world, well, your mindset tends to shift. I got to go to Rome as um, a representative for this Voices of Faith organization, which is about women's leadership in the church. But the glory of it, the glory of it was that I met Catholic sisters from Senegal, Brazil, Australia, the Philippines, India, uh, Sweden, Germany. And so that broader perspective to know that we're sisters to the world, Mm -hmm. I mean, it opens a heart in a whole different way. But the reality is there are some people uh, who have that mindset that we in America specifically are a blessed nation by God and that somehow he favors America. What do you think about that? Have you seen that, that opinion and that mindset come out of individuals? Well, certainly we've seen the consequences of such behavior. I mean, our history is rife with it, with the whole idea of manifest destiny and we're mm. supposed to go from sea to sea and it's about domination. And mm. it's the intersection of that white control where I'm, I am God's favorite. We are God's favorite. Loses sight of the deeper, broader story of the scriptures. This is like at the heart of it. So, Christian nationalists, I think, are frightened people who use the scripture as a rigid protective coat so they don't have to think and they don't have to repent. So the only way really to deal with that is to meet other people, expand our horizons, and be loved enough to let your guard down. America officially began with a huge majority of its citizens being religious. Over a few centuries, that majority shrunk, most noticeably within the past few decades. The amount of adults who describe themselves as Christian in America is about 65% of the population, which is down 12% compared to 10 years ago. In fact, the total amount of people who say they're religious is only 74%, according to the most recent Pew Research Center survey which means 26% of Americans say they aren't affiliated with their religion at all, an increase of 9% in the past decade. There's reason to believe this trend will continue into the future, as newer generations tend to be less religious than previous ones. And, as Michael was telling us, not only are certain people becoming less religious, but many of those who are religious have a hard time labeling themselves as such. One of the things that we talk about in our, in our episode on religion is the rising number of nuns, those affiliated with no specific religion. So what is your outlook on 
religion in America? You know, how is it, how is it changing or progressing? Yeah, definitely seeing that. Definitely feeling that even the people that love their expression of faith, they might love Jesus, they might go to church, they might um, place a lot of value in the scriptures still. Uh, but more people than, than ever that I've ever seen are hesitant, even in that position, to call themselves a Christian. Uh, like labeling ourselves as belonging to just one group. And wh- why do you think that is? What people assume when you tell them that you're a Christian, it might not be what you want them to assume. <laughs> you know, like saying, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian has all sorts of connotations depending on where you live, what you're like. And for me, I don't even know. I don't even label myself. I don't know what to call myself. And it's for some of those same reasons. What changes can we expect if this trend continues? Let's say we get to a point where the majority of America is non-religious. What happens then? Well, I don't have a crystal ball around me at the moment, so I can't give you a solid answer on that. But our freedom of religion has stood the test of time so far. Even a lot of non-religious people actually agree that people should be allowed to practice the religion of their choosing. Or none, for that matter. Sure, there may be differences of opinion when it comes to how that freedom is expressed around our government, but overall, Americans try to live and let live when it comes to religion. And there are many parts of this country where religious tolerance is not just, well, tolerated, but flourishing, where religious groups are making efforts to reach out to those with different beliefs as a way to build community. Well, like for instance, flushing. A small community in New York that has over 100 places of worship coexisting peacefully. Religious leaders there regularly get together to support each other. And it's something they really hope spreads to the rest of the country. Here's what they had to say about that. We coexist because of the leadership of faith leaders in making sure that we get to know each other and have this type of solidarity that I think is solely missing in other communities. Maybe we could become a microcosm of what the country and hopefully eventually the world could become. My immediate community is mostly Asian and Jewish. This is beautiful. I love it. If we can do it, and we are very diverse, we have the diverse community in the country, if we can do it, why can't you do it? And remember the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro from the beginning of the show? Two lawsuits were filed on their behalf challenging the judge's decision, stating their constitutional rights were stepped on. A restraining order was placed on the judge's order, which nullified it as the case made its way through the Tennessee Supreme Court and, eventually, the U.S. Supreme Court, who allowed the restraining order to stay. They were able to open for worship and have stayed open ever since. Luckily, I mean, you know, you know the, the United States Constitution and the federal government guarantee our freedom of religion and uh, to, to, to freely worship. Well, I came here 30, uh, almost 38 years ago. Um, I came for one reason and for one reason only, which is my freedom. And if you come to a new country recognizing this is what you value the most and what you want to have the most, and then that is taken away from you, what else do you have? Nothing. And I'm not going to allow it. If I, as long as I'm going 
to live. I'm going to fight for it. You know, all of us as uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and so on, we, we face a lot of challenges. But if you take the hope away, um, I don't think life would have any meaning or sense. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to speak with us today. You can keep up with Sister Simone Campbell on Twitter, where her handle is SR underscore Simone. Her organization can be followed at networklobby.org or at facebook.com slash networklobby. Big thanks to Dr. Spinati at the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro. And thanks to Michael Gunger. You can check out his organization and podcast at theliturgist.com. And he also has a new album out. So this new record that I came out with, I'm doing a new project under the name Wei Wu, W-E-I-W, called Are You Perfect Yet? My first solo record. Um, and it's all about, it's it's a spiritual, it's really, for me, it's a very spiritual record, but it's very embodiment focused. It's kind of a dance record, but also like a meditation, a meditation embodiment dance record, basically. We'll include links to all of these places in our show notes for easy access. You can watch the Reconnecting Roots TV series on your local public television station, on the PBS app, or stream it on our website. Feel free to rate us or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so we can keep the conversation going. You can also listen to the Reconnecting Roots album where Fire Kid and Mandy McCauley reimagine iconic songs with a modern twist, each song related to a topic on the show. You can find the album on Spotify, Apple Music, and other popular streaming services. And now, here's their performance of This Little Light of Mine.
The Reconnecting Roots podcast is made possible by the following wonderful people. Our producer, Joel McAfee. Writer, researcher, and my co-host, Ryan Estabrooks. Our research department, David Baxter, Larissa Goodlad, and Joel McAfee. Consulting by Dave Boyd. Music supervisor and editor, Mandy McCauley. Score, George Polly and Paul Kinsing. Mixed by George Polly. And our executive producers, Frank and Karen Smith. And our amazing theme song, America the Beautiful Reimagined as We're Home by Fire Kid and Mandy McCauley. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. The Reconnecting Roots podcast is a Lil Dragon and Story Scout Studios production.